Welcome to the Crispin Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Crispin. Topics on today's episode include headlines from around the industry, my interview with Bank of Oklahoma's Chris Baloney on volatility and spreads, the money supply, and bond over and underperformance, and why rates have moved higher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simple Nexus, an Encino company and award-winning developer of mortgage technology for modern lenders. Nexus Closing offers single sign-on borrower convenience, robust LOS system integration, dedicated title collaboration tools, and flexible support for varying closing scenarios, giving lenders a modern closing solution for improved speed, security, liquidity, and savings. To learn more about Nexus Closing, visit SimpleNexus. Lending continues to be intertwined with legal and compliance issues. There's a story from overnight that's catching a lot of attention. Equifax stock falls after saying it received a CID from the CFPB. The Federal Trade Commission agreed to drop its challenge to Intercontinental Exchange Inc. or or ICE's proposed deal with Black Knight Inc. in a joint stipulation that allows them to work toward a settlement. Lender Toolkit is suing celebrity home loans and MLD. And meanwhile, lenders and vendors are doing what they can to increase business and tap into new markets. And with that in mind, National MI is sponsoring a weekly show beginning today focused on offering mortgages to people in their 20s and 30s. Mortgages with Millennials. Join me at 1 p.m. Eastern as I host with Kristen Messerly. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome onto the show Bank of Oklahoma's Chris Maloney to talk about volatility and spreads, the money supply, and bond over and under performance. He's a mortgage strategist at BOK Financial and the author of one of my favorite daily market commentaries. I have to admit, I'm an avid fan of your daily commentary, and and I I really enjoy reading it every morning. And, And so I want to clarify some things that are consistent topics for you. Uh, and I want to start by by asking you, you've been saying for quite some time that the terminal Fed funds rate would be 5.5%, and we're finally there. And uh, it, would, it would appear that after however long you've been estimating that, I don't know, it's probably been over a year, that the Fed's there and the, the general market consensus is with you. But I want to ask you, way, way back when, how did you get to 5.5% as your estimate? It was a combination of looking at historic data, particularly from the 1975 through 1984 era when we last had a serious inflation problem. And it took into account the average spread of treasuries over the CPI annualized run rate during that period, along with the slope of the yield curve, uh, the level of the Fed funds target lower bound over CPI, and a really good or lucky guess as to how inflation would respond to the higher rates Powell has unleashed. I mean, during the period from 1975 until Volcker took the helm from Arthur Burns in August of 1979, he took over the lower bound of the Fed funds target averaged 75 basis points below the annualized CPI run rate. Once Volcker took over from then until the end of 1984, it averaged 450 basis points above. Now, this was an important distinction between the two men. And it arose from the fact that from October 1979 till October 1982, 
Volcker targeted the money supply and he allowed the Fed funds rate to go where it needed to in order to bring inflation back under control. So, but the models I use are not very complex. We had a saying in the military, KISS, K-I-S-S, stupid, as the best plans and models are the simple ones. The more complex models are, the more they can fly off the rails. Plus, you know, the economic data and models, they only take so far. You need to have a good grasp of economic history and an understanding of human nature to fill in the blanks that data is going to leave behind. So it was an amalgamation of all of that. And that's how we came up with the five and a half percent. I like that acronym. Keep it simple, stupid. So now that yes. we're now that we're at that five and a half percent figure, what do you expect the significance to be on spreads and volatility in the market? I expect volatility to move slowly lower through year end as investors they'll eventually come to terms with the fact that the Fed put is dead, at least until we get back to the two percent inflation target. So the four rate cuts you see priced in next year, it's more like four and a half. They're more a function of investor hopes for the Fed to get the party started again than from the actions and words that the Fed under Powell has actually shown since it began to hike in March of last year. You know, volatility has been elevated but range bound of late because investors slowly came to terms with the fact the Fed was not about to stop hiking rates and begin cutting this year. And the same still needs to happen for what is priced in for 2024. You know, mortgage spreads, as we know, mortgages are not fans of volatility. They'll tighten in response to this. But first, investors must come to terms with the fact that Powell, unlike his immediate predecessors, Yellen and Bernanke, he's not as wedded to constant injections of new credit at every turn of events. QE is not an option when inflation is at the level it is now, and neither are Fed rate cuts. Well, in the most recent statement, the the Fed essentially implied that it believes inflation won't be back into its self-proclaimed 2% target until 2025. Does that give you hope or pause? I think that's certainly a concern because inflation results primarily from monetary policy. Monetary policy is a government affair. And like any government program, it creates vested interest who want the inflation to continue. You know, some benefit from inflation. Most people don't. But a nation like the United States, which is heavily in debt, both privately and publicly, they'll there's always a temptation to use inflation to make those debts go away. So Chair Powell and the current 2% inflation target are going to come under a lot of political pressure to ease off and begin to loosen again. Inflation be damned, in particular, if we enter a recession. Like, we all admire Paul Volcker now. But we need to remember how we, he was absolutely lambasted by the press and the politicians during his fight with inflation. You know, Powell has already moved to what is called a flexible inflation targeting regime. Now, that's a slightly dumbed down version of inflation targeting. 
The problem with the theory of inflation targeting is that there are no anchors to your monetary system because the inflation targets, which are the goalposts, they can be changed at any time. And 2025 is a long way off. So Powell needs to show the same political courage that Volcker did. And so far, so good. Yes, maybe maybe in 10 or 20 years, we'll come to revere Jerome like, like people have revered Volcker. I, I want to talk about kind of the the government's influence here and, and its effect on money supply. And, and we've seen the money supply shrink for the past several months. You've you've written a lot about this. What does that mean and why is it important? Let's use M2 as our guide. And the money supply, as you as you talked about, has now dropped seven months in a row on a year-over-year basis. Now, it's a well-established economic law, which one that's repeatedly denied throughout history and repeatedly and painfully relearned that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. You need fuel for the fire and for all prices to rise. Only one pony can pull off that trick, a larger supply of money and credit. Yes, there are instances like war or enforced economic lockdowns can also work to increase supply by artificially cutting off supply. But for prices to fall, and this is something modern central banking theory fears, like a vampire fears the crows, the money supply has to shrink for that to happen, or the amount of supply coming into the economy needs to grow. So the drop in the money supply of which keep in mind the money supply increased by an astounding 40% during QE4. But the drop in money supply will work to stop the price increases and bring us back to the Fed's 2% target. But monetary tightening, like monetary loosening, you can take things too far. I believe the annualized drop in the money supply is the first instance we've seen since Say about the Great Depression. I'm not saying we're going to see another Great Depression, but if you want to cause one, a dramatic decrease in the supply of money and credit will certainly do the trick. Now, this is one of the reasons I believe the Fed is done with hiking rates at its current five and a half percent level, despite the theory of inflation targeting, which guides their actions specifically denying that the money supply is anything to do with prices. So as things look now, I think they've gone far enough. And if I've noticed a drop in money supply, I'm certain the army of statisticians at the Fed have noticed as well, and they will pause from here on in. Very well put. There's another subject that you write about a lot, and that's bond performance, these overperformance or underperformance. And I want to ask you, I have a couple of questions on this, but what types of bonds do you like comparing against one another and why? Broadly speaking, at the moment, you know, I'm, I'm a primarily an agency mortgage strategist, and I prefer a slight overweight to the shorter end of the duration spectrum within mortgages. You know, what is the yield curve telling you right now? Stay short. Why go out long and take on that additional risk for less yield? I'm talking about going out longer on the duration spectrum. You know, I expect a slow, continued bull steepening through year end as the long end of the curve reprices. And if you look at Fannie Mae 15 and 20 years right now, the indexes, they both look most attractive on an OAS basis compared to their past five year averages using the Bloomberg models. 
Ginny May 30 year looks a little cheap, while conventional 30 years right now look fairly valued. You know, investment grade corporates look expensive compared to mortgage backed securities. And if you're on team recession, the credit risk free nature of mortgage backed securities is a huge plus. You know, look how mortgage backed securities performed back in 2007 and 2008 prior to QE1. I don't expect QE to come around again anytime soon. Uh, treasuries will always have a bid if the US dollar is and it remains the world's reserve currency for the foreseeable future at least. But agency MBS spreads optically look very wide to treasuries at the moment. So across the board, broadly speaking, I like mortgages and within mortgages, I like the shorter duration paper. Maybe I should have asked this question first, but what does overperformance or underperformance, undervalued, fairly value, specific bonds tell you about the market? What's what's it all mean? I'd say it's more a question of what that tells you about the people who invest in markets. You know, there's an old saying that markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. If if you know what is a price? A price is just an expression of people's opinion about something. It's a temporary resting point between two parties about what they believe the value of something is as expressed in dollars, which is the price. So one day, like in my case, you're happily counting your unrealized gains in Lehman Brothers stock. And a month later, you're staring at a portfolio that's been absolutely shredded because people's opinions about Lehman Brothers change. Now, when you invest in highly inflationary times and nobody alive today knows anything but highly inflationary times, you can get caught up in one mania after another. In my 30 years doing this, off the top of my head, I've written out three investment manias so far. When I was first hired, I was told by my guru, this is when I first became a portfolio manager, to always invest scared. Look for companies with boring business models, low debt, steady earnings. So slow and steady wins the race. But if you're a gambler, and there are plenty of them out there, there's always a plethora of options for you to get your thrills with. You know, I'm I'm still scratching my head over crypto and Bitcoin. People have made a fortune in that sector. The longer a mania lasts, the more people will lose their heads over it. But especially in times such as ours, markets are often far more psychological than they are fundamental. Yes, I like winning and losing money quickly, which is why I bet the Oakland Athletics on the money line every every game this year. It's it's going pretty well. What <laughs> <laughs> man? Yeah, thank you. My my dad says as much. Uh, so I I. I have one more question about topics you write on, and that's MBS issuance. Can you explain the significance of tracking MBS issuance? Every, everything you can buy and sell, from paintings, cars, to bonds, they all must abide by the law of marginal utility. The more of something there is holding everything else steady, the less it is worth. There's an industry that's grown up around investing in mortgage bonds, among other things, and it has to continuously replenish the prepayments and natural amortization. That, that's just the characteristics of the mortgage bond sector. So the mortgage market saw an explosion in issuance during QE4, 2020, 2021. That averaged, I think gross issuance was like $3.3 trillion a year. And that was well above the 1.3 trillion average we saw in the three years that preceded QE4. 
So net issuance tells much the same story about that. I think it averaged about 700 billion during the go-go years, and it was uh, about 275 billion in the preceding three years. So having an idea of how much new supply that's coming down the pike, uh, you know, along with how much of the market is being paid down, that helps you adjust your price and spread expectations. You know, this year I forecast on a whole, see 1.1 trillion gross, 300 net no organic supply. And while this is below what we saw in 2020 and 2021, and even last year, it's not too far off what you consider a normal year. We're getting back to normal, albeit slowly. And I want to close, Chris, with a pretty open-ended question here, since uh, I love hearing you opine on various topics. And that's, what do you expect for the mortgage industry and and the mortgage-backed security space as we move into the fall? Well, you know, the the good news, and, you know, I'm not always a a negative Nelly. This is good news. And I believe that the worst of the layoffs and consolidation in the mortgage lending industry, they're likely behind us. You know, if if you look at like Rocket, for example, they're a bellwether in the mortgage lending industry. They're ginormous. During their first quarter earnings call in 2022, they specifically talked about doing cost reduction measures throughout the remainder of the second quarter. And that was their nice way of saying they were going to reduce headcount. And I think they reduced headcount something like 30% last year. In their most recent first quarter earnings call, they didn't talk about headcount reduction at all. They talked about the opportunities they saw going forward. And if you look at overall industry headcount is only slightly above where it was in 2018. And it's now back to levels we saw in the middle part of 2020 before everybody went on the QE4 hiring boom. So the the industry itself has been through a very tough retrenchment as especially refinance sourced issuance collapse, but it's really slimmed down. And when you combine that with the enthusiasm which, which mortgage lenders have grabbed onto technology, they're extremely good at finding customers to keep the lights on. So while I'm not saying I foresee great times coming over the near term for the mortgage lending industry, at this point, I think they're out of the woods, so to speak. I like your thoughts there. Chris, I really appreciate having you on. Uh, I think you're a wealth of knowledge. And I just want to thank you very much for, for making the time to talk to me. Very enjoyable. Thank you for having me. It's nice to know an actual Oakland A's fan. <laughs> yeah, there's not not many of us. <laughs> Dude, you guys got to do something with that stadium. Even watching it on TV from from far away, you could say, my God, it's falling apart. I have to tell you, I I would argue it's one of the best experiences in baseball for several reasons. And and chief among them is there's no bathroom lines. There's no concession lines. There's nobody that's squeezing next to you in your seat that you got to you know, move over for. You can stretch out. You can put your feet up, put your arms out. You can talk to the you can yell at the players. You know, they hear you. It's uh, <laughs> there's some perks to it for sure. No, no, no doubt. It's always good to rag on players when necessary. You have a right to do that after you buy a ticket, Rob. Exactly. Exactly. I'm with you. Bond yields pushed higher to open the week following hawkish comments from Federal Reserve officials. New York Fed President Williams sees Federal Reserve policy remaining restrictive for some time, and Fed Governor Bowman said that additional rate hikes will likely be needed. 
Rates have also been pushed higher following last week's double whammy of Fitch's rating downgrade and the heavy supply announcement from the U.S. Treasury. And don't forget non-farm payrolls from Friday, which showed that despite missing the headline number and the previous month's observations being revised lower, wage growth increased more than anticipated. July marked the second consecutive month of job growth below 200,000, signaling the labor market continues to cool. However, wages held firm, adding to arguments the Federal Reserve has gotten the upper hand on inflation without triggering a recession or major job losses. The unemployment rate declined to 3.5%, which is slightly above the 53-year low set back in January. The ISM Manufacturing Index improved but remained in contractionary territory for the ninth straight month in July. Price paid eased for the fifth time over the last seven months. Meanwhile, service data showed moderate expansion once again as consumers shift spending from goods to services. The most recent Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey shows credit conditions for commercial and industrial loans remain tight, and 40% expect further tightening. This could create a drag on growth as projects become delayed or abandoned due to lack of financing. Though this week will be dominated by the Consumer Price Index report on Thursday and the Producer Price Index on Friday, as well as consumer sentiment, small business optimism, and mortgage earnings from United Wholesale, Loan Depot, and Guild, today's economic calendar kicked off with NFIB small business optimism for July, hitting an eight-month high. We've also received the June trade deficit in at $65.5 billion, and later today brings the beginning of Treasury's quarterly refunding when it auctions $42 billion of three-year notes. Two Fed speakers are scheduled, Philadelphia President Harker and Richmond President Barkin. After the yield curve extended its recent steepening move yesterday, we begin the day with agency MBS prices better by an eighth to a quarter, the 10-year yielding 3.98 after closing yesterday at 4.08%, and bonds are rallying in part due to some slow growth news out of China. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Orlando worked all his life in the circus. He joined the circus young and worked his way up from stable boy to apprentice tumbler, then became a human cannibal. He was fantastic at it, shooting higher and further than anyone had ever gone before. He also did some aerial tumbling that really excited the crowds. But he grew unhappy and wondered what else might be out there, away from the circus. He finally decided to quit the circus and went in to talk with the boss. His boss was distraught, as the human cannibal was a big crowd pleaser but Ronaldo was not dissuaded from his plan. The boss tried again to retain him in the circus. You're so perfect for the cannonball. Where will I ever find someone of your caliber? Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Simple Nexus, an Encino company, developer of mortgage technology, uniting the people, systems, and stages of the mortgage process into one seamless end-to-end solution. Learn more at simplenexus.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.